Welcome to Noir Talk, a podcast devoted to discussing the nonprofit Film Noir Foundation. I'm your host, Hagai Latour. October marks the return of Noir City, D.C. to the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center in Silver Spring, Maryland. Dates for this year's 13-day festival are October 14th through 26th. Brooklyn College film professor, historian, and FNF board member Foster Hirsch will introduce screenings opening weekend, October 14th and 15th. FNF founder and president Eddie Muller will host all shows from Friday, October 20th through Sunday, October 22nd. Also available at Noir City, D.C. during Eddie's visit, and while supplies last, will be copies of Batman in Noir Alley. To those of you who might not know about this, Turner Classic Movies, to promote Eddie's Noir Alley show on TCM, has joined forces with DC Comics to create a brand new Batman adventure featuring the Dark Knight teaming up with the Czar of Noir on a thrilling case that also leads into a preview of DC's classic story, Batman Gotham Noir. Noir Alley airs Sundays on TCM at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. West Coast Time. And coming up this Sunday, October 8th, in recognition of October's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, the FNF is co-presenting a screening of George Cukor's 1944 psychological thriller Gaslight at the AFI Silver Theater and Cultural Center at 12.30 p.m. The screening will be introduced by writer and film historian Imogen Sarah Smith, and will be followed by a 45-minute panel discussing and demystifying gaslighting, a form of emotional abuse where manipulation makes the victim feel they are losing their sense of reality. We now return to part two of our discussion of film noir composers and musical scores with documentary producer and author Stephen C. Smith. So now we come to Bernard Herrmann, the great master of many different styles of music. And the movie we're going to focus on here with Herrmann is Hangover Square from 1945, starring Laird Krieger. And Herrmann's approach to this movie to this particular movie score is unusual tying in with the particular plot of the movie it is and i don't think any composer has ever had a more ideal assignment or situation than bernard herman did on hangover square this is someone he was an american-born composer a contemporary of raxon's and a friend born in 1911 in new york city uh worked with orson wells and radio came out with wells to do citizen kane it was the first film for them both and you could argue that herman's score for that is a noir score of a kind as is the magnificent ambersons indeed so many herman scores uh with their sense of doom and entrapment and fatalism uh are as our friend ellen k Rohde would say noir stained um, and then you get Hangover Square, which is a film set uh, at the sort of turn of the century, and it's about a, a composer who is trying to write this magnum opus, his piano concerto, but unfortunately he keeps being distracted by these psychotic episodes that lead him to kill, unfortunately for everyone, especially for him. But uh, at the end of the film, he does get to perform his piano concerto. And the sequence is a masterpiece. Uh, John Brahm directed the film. Brahm and Herman were very close, liked each other a lot. And Herman was given the opportunity to write the entire piano concerto before the filming. And he created this work, the Concerto Macabre. And then he wrote the film score when the film was done using all the themes from the concerto. So that you watch this film and you hear various themes throughout it in the underscoring, and then at the climax of the film, when there is a rather disastrous premiere performance of this concerto that ends literally in flames and the death of its composer, uh, you hear this one work that sums up all the music that you've heard and really all of the story. 
And Brahms shot it in this amazing virtuosic fashion where it sort of starts perhaps not slowly, but but not radically, and then as the music gets more and more exciting, and we'll we'll talk about that more in the second half of this, uh, he does some remarkable things. And I, I think we're going to hear the first half of the Concerto Macabre now. Yes, we'll play the first half of the Concerto, and then we'll come back and discuss some of the themes in the second half. And I'll just say briefly, if I may, that in this part you will hear what is, it begins with what becomes also the main title of the film, and then you'll hear the, the love theme, uh, which being Herman and being a, 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 a very sad love story that ends in the, in the murder of Linda Darnell's character, is very wistful and melancholy and quite beautiful.
And now let's talk about some of the themes we're going to hear in the second half of the Concerto Macabre from Hangover Square. Yes, this is the midpoint of the concerto, so you have about five more minutes of listening. I would say just sit back and enjoy. And what you're going to hear at the beginning is the fire motif. Uh, and the movie begins, the first scene after the credits, is a really stunning murder uh, that takes place amid flames. And fire is a, is a visual motif throughout the film. Linda Darnell's character, her, her body is burned. And so it's, it's uh, not surprising that the composer's concerto has this fire motif in it. And in fact, the finale of the film involves the whole house catching on fire and everyone in the audience fleeing the house. And at this point, our, our poor protagonist, played by Laird Krieger, has lost his mind and sits there and finishes the piano concerto by himself. So also very unusually for a piano concerto and something that Bernard Herrmann enjoyed doing, you will hear the musicians uh, for about 90% of this excerpt, and then it ends with a very sad and yet oddly triumphant finale. And, it, it, and I think it almost reflects Herrmann's own personality, which was very individualistic in Hollywood. He was famously confrontational and argumentative and distrustful, and you had to convince him that you knew what you were talking about, and then he would relax and be a great collaborator. But I think he really identified in some ways with this character, not the homicidal part. So I think he enjoyed writing this very exciting, virtuosic, fast music for the finale, which Brahms shoots with these fast tracking shots across the musicians that are really still very exciting. And then it, after everyone has left, the very sad ending of the film, which is the, the concerto being played alone. And I will say that there was no more ardent fan of this film when it came out than a very young Stephen Sondheim who told me that he sat repeatedly through the film so that he could look at the music that was on the stands and memorize as much as he could of the concerto. And he said he can still to this day play it. And the music of Hangover Square and the music of Bernard Herrmann in general heavily influenced Sondheim when he was writing Sweeney Todd.
So now we'll get to another Max Steiner theme, which is from the great James Cagney gangster combination with film noir, which is White Heat <laughs> from 1949. Yes, I think this is a great uh, follow-up to Hangover Square because both of these are psychological portraits and music. And it shows a side of Steiner that I think people don't give him enough credit for, which was his ability to do what Bernard Herrmann said was the foremost job of a composer, a film composer, which was to, quote, get inside the drama. Uh, for Herrmann, and I think for Steiner, it was really essential if a film was about a certain character and understanding them, to have the music help you understand them, to not just be decorative and illustrative of the setting, but to really take you inside their mind. And when you listen to the main title of White Heat, you will hear these leaping octaves. And I think it's, it's, it's genius on so many levels because it's a vertical film. I and mean, we think of Top of the World Mob being said over and over. We think of the, the finale on the rooftop and the explosion. So this music and, and the whistle and the train, everything is sort of like steam rising. You know, everything is going up. So the fact that Steiner has this music that is leaping up and almost shrieking is such an effective uh, main title. Now, here's the amazing thing. He didn't write the basic music for this, for this movie. He had written it for another Cagney film years earlier, Angels with Dirty Faces, back in 1938. And yet, he, he realized that there was something in this basic theme that you will hear is the first notes of the music, this kind of leaping device that, that is the beginning of both films, that captured the essence of Cagney's character in both movies. And when he was assigned White Heat, I think that he sensed that this was really, Steiner sensed that this was the sort of apotheosis of the Warner Brothers Cagney crime film. So he went back to that music from Angels with Dirty Faces, reimagined it. It's heavily reorchestrated, so it's much more dramatic and it's much more shrill in a good way, but it's interesting that it's based on an early Cagney performance, but this is a more almost psychotic rendering of it and I think just fits the film perfectly. And this track also starts with that Steiner Warner Brothers fanfare and then seamlessly transitions into that intense main theme. Next up, we have the movie Cry of the City, with its main theme written by Alfred Newman. And the theme we're going to hear in this track is actually originally from a movie called Street Scene from the early 1930s. And Newman was the head of the music department at 20th Century Fox for many years. And this particular theme was heard in many, many Fox <laughs> films, especially throughout yeah. the 1940s, and in particular, a lot of noir films. 
It absolutely was. And by the way, can I say it's nice after Hangover Square and White Heat that now we get something very tuneful here, <laughs> very uh, a little more mellow, although, of course, it depended on how you heard it in which film. But yes, this was a, a melody, a Gershwin-esque theme that Alfred Newman wrote for 1931's Street Scene, and it sort of it became an instant standard. Uh, at least it was, it was familiar music uh, and became one of the best-known film themes of the 30s. So that when Zanuck um, offered Newman the job of music director at Fox and brought him over, Zanuck let Newman know how much he, Zanuck, loved the theme from Street Scene and said, anytime you want to use that in a film, please do. Any, any, any movie you think where that fits, please use it. And Newman took him up on that. So you'll hear it in Where the Sidewalk Ends. You'll hear it in Cry of the City. I mean, to me, this is the 20th Century Fox theme of noir. And uh, and you will hear the ultimate version of it in a non-noir film, How to Marry a Millionaire, which was one of the very first Fox Cinemascope movies. And the movie itself was prefaced by Alfred Newman conducting in stereo, in widescreen, the uh, Fox Orchestra in this theme. But it really does belong, I think, to noir. And we're also going to hear the Fox Studio fanfare beginning this theme, which is probably the most familiar of all the classic Hollywood studio fanfares, and it was written by Alfred Newman because it's the only one of those old fanfares that's still in use today. Absolutely. I mean, how can you top this? Whether it's Star Wars or the latest Planet of the Apes movie, uh, you can't go wrong starting your movie with this theme. scores for noir and noir stain movies as we mentioned uh, these are both <laughs> by max steiner again uh, the first one up is from treasure of the sierra madre yes and uh, just in the same way that eddie muller and alan k Rohde are always so good at introducing films that are are noir related i thought it might be fun to briefly listen to some music from these movies uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre was one of Steiner's favorite films to work on, and I think certainly if you describe its plot, it is a noir type of story. And the cue that we're about to hear is called Madness, and to me it is an almost Hermanesque depiction of the state of the mind of Fred C. Dobbs. This is the sequence when he thinks that he's killed Curtin, played by Tim Holt, and I think it is a virtuosic piece of strings writing that shows just how Steiner could really get inside the character and make us feel what the character is feeling and also be frightened by them at the same time.
now we'll hear some of the themes from Mildred Pierce, including the main title, as well as some of the scoring that Steiner did for dialogue. So we're going to hear some dialogue passages with um, Joan Crawford playing Mildred Pierce and Anne Blythe playing her daughter Vita. And you wanted to talk a little bit about Steiner's particular penchant or skill for scoring scenes that had dialogue in them as well. Yes, yeah, something that I've learned looking at his scores is that Steiner was extremely sensitive uh, in, in terms of factoring into his writing what the pitch of an actor's voice was. He would translate the the pitch of an actor's voice into a musical key. So he would write, and he, I would see this in his, in his scores, he would say, Betty Davis speaks in the key of F. In other words, that he sort of that's where it would be on the piano. So he would either arrange his instruments to be above or below the speaker. And I just wonder how many composers today think on that level of, of trying to work around the dialogue and make sure the dialogue really pops by writing in a, in, in a range that does not interfere or fight the, the voice of the speaker. expensive tastes. Vita was growing up. Why do you think I want money so badly? All right, why? Are you sure you want to know? Yes. Then I'll tell you. With this money, I can get away from you. Vita. From you and your chickens and your pies and your kitchens and everything that smells of grease. I can get away from this shack with its cheap furniture and this town and its dollar days and its women that wear uniforms and its men that wear overalls. Vita, I think I'm really seeing you for the first time in my life and you're cheap and horrible. You think just because you made a little money you can get a new hairdo and some expensive clothes and turn yourself into a lady. But you can't because you'll never be anything but a common frump whose father lived over a grocery store and whose mother took in washing. With this money I can get away from every rotten stinking thing that makes me think of this place or you.
Let's move on now to several film noir scores from the 1950s. And we're going to start off with the way the whole decade kicked off in many ways of film noir <laughs> with Franz Waxman's great score for Sunset Boulevard. Yes, and I think we have our first Oscar winner here, very deservedly. Waxman's a wonderful figure, uh, someone who really, to me, is one of the definitive noir composers. Like Billy Wilder, he had a foot in two worlds. He came from Germany. Uh, he was beaten by Nazis, and uh, that sent him fleeing first to France and then America, luckily for us. Uh, where he found a home at Universal, writing music for things like The Bride of Frankenstein and quickly moved up into being one of the top film composers. But he had a great sense of a tremendous education in classical music, but also loved jazz. And when you listen to the music from Sunset Boulevard, and we're going to hear a, a suite that was recorded by Charles Gerhardt uh, in the 1970s, you will hear the main title, you will hear the Joe Gillis music and some of the love music, and then finally the, the Norma Desmond is full-on crazy music at the end of the film. And listen for how brilliantly Waxman combines the European sound of Norma Desmond's music, the Salome music that you hear her, uh, that accompanies her as she goes down the stairs at the end of the film, and the jazziness of the main title and the energy that that Waxman gives the music, he he was it was the perfect synthesis of the old world and the new. And listen to how he orchestrates it so that, especially again in the finale, you will hear brass trumpets sounding almost like they're off stage. And it is such a, an effective depiction of madness. Um, this may be my favorite at the moment of the scores that we're talking about, if I had to pick one. I just think it, it understands so much what this movie is about and captures it so perfectly in the music.
Next up, we're going to talk about the score or the opening theme for the movie Angel Face, the great Otto Preminger directed film scored by Dmitry Tiomkin. Yes, and Tiomkin is interesting. He's certainly one of the best known figures of film music, especially during his lifetime. No one was a better self promoter than he. And he was a very talented man. I confess he's not my favorite of these by a long shot. Uh, I think that his music sometimes simply reinforces what we're seeing visually so that rather than taking us at another layer uh, a layer deeper into the story or into the characters the way Bernard Herrmann did every single time uh, Tiomkin tends to decorate what we're seeing with a very emphatic restatement of it. Uh, that's not always the case and he did some very good scores and he was a great tunesmith. He wrote great melodies like Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling for High Noon, one of his many Oscar winners um, and one thing you will hear in this music from Angel Face is a very prominent piano and it's worth mentioning that he was a very fine pianist who was uh, famous for performing George Gershwin's Concerto in F when that was a new work and he was really going to be I think a concert musician uh, until fate directed him to Hollywood and he became a composer. And a word that's often used to describe film music or certain parts of film music that I think is way overused is haunting. There's very few <laughs> yes. scores that I think are really haunting. Certainly Bernard Herrmann's For Vertigo would count as that. But this theme from Angel Face by Tiomkin, I think 100% counts or should be described by the word haunting. So let's hear I agree. I think it's a, a terrific film and a very good score. Yeah, so let's hear that main theme now. Before we move on to our next track, I just wanted to mention a funny Dmitry Tiomkin quote that I read in, in a book about Hitchcock's music, which I think was quoting from Tiomkin's uh, autobiography or from his memoirs. So Tiomkin worked several times with Hitchcock. First time was on Shadow of a Doubt from 1943. And at a preview screening, apparently the audience was starting to laugh, and Tiomkin was very put off by this. And he told Hitchcock, well, what's going on? This is a big disaster. And Hitch told him, well, no, don't worry, it's okay. This kind of movie that means they're enjoying it with the nervous tension. But the way <laughs> Tiomkin put the way Tiomkin put it to him, apparently, with his, uh, I guess at the time, broken English, was he said, but Hitch, when should be fear, terror, they going, ha-ha. <laughs> They're going ah, yeah. That's the the fear of any producer, <laughs> and in this case, composer. That the audience is going 
ha-ha at the wrong time. And many a composer has been asked to fix that. Uh, there are legendary stories of films, whether it's of human bondage or others, where the movie didn't play well at all in the preview or The Lost Weekend, and it was the score that supposedly really helped get the preview cards back to the numbers that they wanted. So now let's come back to Bernard Herrmann. And this score that we're going to hear, this track from the score, is for the movie On Dangerous Ground from 1952, which of all those scores that Herman wrote for movies in the 40s and 50s, if there's any dispute about whether they really count as film noir or not, this is the one more than any other movie, which unambiguously, I think everyone would agree, is film noir. And it's a particularly great score. Um, So we're going to hear one of the tracks in here that's called The Death Hunt. The Death Hunt. And Bernard Herrmann told John Houseman, the producer of the film later, that this single cue, The Death Hunt, was Herrmann's own favorite of all of his music. His favorite score of his was Ghost of Mrs. Muir, but single piece of music, Death Hunt. And when you hear this, it's hard to disagree. This is the finale of the movie in which uh, Robert Ryan's character is chasing a, a young man who is also a murderer. And it's a decent enough chase scene, but the music makes it I don't know, 10, 20, 50 times more exciting. And if you hear this piece played live, you really feel like you're on a roller coaster ride. It is such a thrill between the clanging anvil percussion to the phenomenal enhanced brass section where Herman put more horns in the orchestra. <laughs> than some ensembles have players. And uh, the acetates, the original kind of test recordings of the different sessions uh, still exist. And you can hear the valiant studio orchestra trying to get through this cue and really struggling because it is very demanding. What you're going to hear is a recording made in the early 70s conducted by Charles Gerhardt with Herman's supervision. And it, it is a, it's, it's the definitive recording of one of the greatest pieces of film music I think ever written. It really is relentless, is the word I would use to describe it. Um, And when you're listening to it, especially as we're going to hear it now, if you're just listening to it without the movie playing, there's almost no time to even breathe. Oh, exactly. I mean, it is literally a breathless experience for the musicians and a breathless experience for the listeners. Yeah, so get ready. Here comes uh, Bernard Herrmann's Death Hunt.
Okay, well, let's take a moment to catch our breath after that <laughs> intense breathe. experience. And I think it's it's no wonder that Hitchcock uh, ended up working so closely with Herman with Psycho, Vertigo, North by Northwest, a number of other films, yeah. uh, which was after this movie. Because it feels, with this track in particular, it almost feels like the music is attacking you. And it does, and there's even a little bit of music from On Dangerous Ground that Herman lifted uh, and uh, reused in North by Northwest, so you're not wrong at all. Yeah, the, the intensity and in building up the tension is, of course, what Hitchcock's movies were all about, so no wonder they made such a great pairing for, uh, yes. for the great masterpieces they did together. Okay, so now let's wrap up with a couple of tracks that will reflect, the, in a way, the introduction of jazz into film noir, which did start to come into play in the 1950s. We're going to start off with another David Raxon score, which was for the movie The Big Combo from 1955. Yes, and uh, we should probably give a little shout out here to the great Alex North, who, although not a noir composer per se, wrote a score for Streetcar Named Desire that was the real breakthrough for jazz in the movies. And uh, it was so sexy that the uh, Legion of Decency and Production Code made North rescore some of the film. Uh, happily, his original music has been restored. But he wrote a very jazzy score, and I think that empowered other composers, Elmer Bernstein, David Raxon, to write extremely jazzy scores. And now we're getting into the sound that a lot of people think of as the sound of film noir. Some music from a movie that is not a film noir, but was very directly influenced by them and uh, kind of a parody playing off of them in the early 1950s, which is The Bandwagon, a great MGM musical with Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse. And this is a track from the long ballet at the end of the movie, ballet sequence, which is called The Girl Hunt. And the music for this movie, the songs in it, were written by the songwriting team of Howard Dietz and Arthur Schwartz. And the music for this sequence was written by Arthur Schwartz. 
we're going to be hearing a bit of Fred Astaire doing some hard-boiled dialogue, which is really kind of what they were playing off of in this sequence with uh, Nicky Spillane's books, which were enormously popular at the time. But they're also certainly playing off of the film noir movies, which at the time were not known as film noir. So we'll hear a bit of his dialogue with some background music, and then we're going to hear part of the great dance duet sequence that Astaire and Sid Charisse have set to this very jazzy music. Yes, and as they say, success has many parents, and the creation of this is just a bit murky, but apparently uh, the composer Arthur Schwartz worked with the legendary musical arranger Roger Edens, who some say also did a lot of the composing on this. And although the great team of Comden and Green wrote the screenplay as they had written for Singing in the Rain, it is reported that Alan J. Lerner, who would later write My Fair Lady and had already written uh, An American in Paris, the screenplay for MGM, that it's Alan J. Lerner who wrote the uh, dialogue they're going to hear of the stairs here. So whoever did all of that, it certainly is a terrific parody. The city was asleep. The joints were closed. The rats and the hoods and the killers were in their holes. I hate killers. My name is Rod Riley. I'm a detective. Somewhere in a furnished room, some guy was practicing on a horn. It was a lonesome sound. It crawled on my spine. I had just finished a tough case. I was ready to hit the sack. I can smell trouble a mile off. And this poor kid was in trouble. Big trouble. She was scared. Scared as a turkey in November. Okay, so as we will wrap up here, I also wanted to mention that another there's another article from the Noir City E magazine from a few years ago, which is specifically about jazz in film noir. That was written by Woody Hot, and it's an article called On the Downbeat, Investigating the Special Relationship Between Film Noir and Jazz, from the summer 2015 issue of Noir City, where he mentions a number of great jazz scores from noir movies, in particular in the 1950s and 1960s. Yes, definitely well worth a read. Okay, so I think we will wrap things up there. Hope everyone has enjoyed this tour through some of the greatest musical themes and composers who wrote for the classic film noir heiress. So, Stephen C. Smith, thanks so much for joining us here on North. My pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks again to Stephen C. Smith for joining us. Our podcast is available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. 
You can receive all the latest news about the work of the Film Noir Foundation by signing up on their email list at filmnoirfoundation.org. You can also get updates by following the FNF on social media, at Film Noir Foundation on Facebook and Tumblr, and at Noir Foundation on Twitter. And if you have any feedback for the podcast, you can contact us via email at podcast at filmnoirfoundation.org. We'll be back soon with another episode, and until then, thanks for joining us here at Noir Talk.